Welcome to Snack Break. We speak to experts mostly about policy, but also about snacks. How people consume the news, who curates it, and who writes it are changing drastically. More companies have entered the field, and the production and distribution of the news has been democratized and socialized by platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram. Where are all these changes taking us? And what are the major questions news companies and society at large will have to grapple with in the process, especially in divided and turbulent times we're living in? I'm joined today by Jill Abramson, the former executive editor, managing editor, and Washington bureau chief of the New York Times, and a senior lecturer in English at Harvard University. Jill, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, first, and this is the easiest question uh, of, the, of the afternoon, what is the future of news? The future of news is a rosy future indeed, because quality information is a human need, and that's always been so and always will be so. Sometimes it feels like there's too much information. It can feel like we're drowning. Are we getting smarter or are we getting dumber? Sometimes I can't tell, actually. Well, I actually think we are getting smarter, that... um, The number of places that do deep, analytical, uh, really thorough journalism, it's grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, The business model that supports it all is not healthy in all cases. Uh, And by that, you mean what, like uh, sneaky advertising? What, What do you... Well, the the two sources of income that always sustained news were advertising and circulation. And digitally, um, in the beginning, uh, the mantra was news has to be free. And so, essentially, there's no circulation income, only advertising. And now we live in a world where, in terms of digital advertising, Facebook and Google eat the lion's share of it. So in some ways, even though that's been a challenge, it's been a healthy development, and more places are asking their readers to pay for their news, which was the old model to begin with. Is that Uh, working? It's working at the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and other quality publications. It's not working everywhere. And so, and it's able to work there because they have a loyal base uh, they have people who respect the newspapers. And they also have great journalism that's worth paying for. Yeah. It's hard to tell whether or not we're in a golden age of media or a dark age, because in this negotiation, uh, this, this funding model, local news and regional news also seems to suffer, uh, not to mention the acrimonious relationship with the federal government. But you see it as an, a moment of optimism. I do, just because uh, I see more really good work being done than I've ever seen before. But uh, it's not like I have Panglossian uh, glasses on. I see the challenges. I was in front of the office building in New York where, you know, local reporters from the St. Paul paper and the Denver paper were protesting outside of the Vulture uh, Capital Fund that owns them now is ripping the jobs away. So I'm very aware of the very real problems. What's what's the solution there uh, with, with local news in particular? Well, it, it has to be a combination. I mean, in some places, like in Los Angeles, you had recently a local billionaire step forward to buy the paper and hopefully bring it back. 
it, uh, you know, the glory days that it wants uh, enjoy. So is relying uh, on philanthropy is the suggestion, or is there a business model that could support it? Well, and then there are nonprofit, local, um, investigative groups. I mean, I'm not saying that they uh, make up for what's been lost, but they start to be uh, some solutions to the crisis. Uh, are there any places that you see in particular that are doing it well? ProPublica is doing it well, and they, they're an all-investigative journalism model. I'm on their board, uh, and they're starting to do state-level versions, and they do great investigative projects and partner with local news organizations that can't afford the time uh, or manpower to get these accountability stories done. So is it, is it that we're in kind of just a period of negotiation with the Internet, that the Internet came in uh, and social media and has sort of disrupted the journalism field, but eventually, uh, journalism industry will, will figure out its way on all these sorts of issues. Is that kind I of... I certainly is, hope that... Yeah. I hope so. Uh, and I think so. When was the first time you heard about Twitter? And what did you think about it? Be honest. The first time I heard about Twitter was during the 2012 presidential election. And I went out to Iowa. I was... Uh, ma I, my, I, I was managing editor of the Times, I think, still. And... Uh, I noticed that every single political reporter, you know, had their tweet deck. You know, it was just like an obsession. And I had heard of Twitter before that, but it was the first time I realized how prevalent and dominant it was. Were you suspicious of it at first? So the first time I heard about it, I was, it was, I remember I was a senior in college and a friend of mine told me that, that, uh, that there was this new thing called Twitter and you could send updates to people. And I said, well, couldn't you just text it or email it to those friends? And he said, no, no, it's too slow. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous because email and texting are actually immediate. But there was this whole new platform, and then media was sort of changed by that, and it's still kind of figuring out, okay, well, in this sort of Twitter world, how is it best used? I think it's best used. I use it for, you know, great links to read things I wouldn't otherwise see from the people that I follow on Twitter. And it's also become the platform where anybody who's very engaged in the political system, it's where news breaks. I mean, every political reporter that I know, before they've even finished a story, will post something, just a snippet on Twitter. To, it's almost like laying a stake. The, the, I got here first. Yeah. So you, uh, don't, you, you don't see it as a death of long form, you see it as a conduit to promote long form. I see it as a compliment. Yeah. Uh, at least that's how I use that. And I must admit, never did I think back in 2012, and I was probably a late adapter uh, in many ways back then, but that you would have it be the principal communications channel for the President of the United States. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. what, what are the, I mean, with these new platforms, with social media, what are the few greatest challenges you see that still quite haven't been resolved? I mean, apart from the, we talked about local news earlier, but, but what, are the, what are the other things? Well, I think that social media disaggregates, uh, you know, in, it, it, redu it makes having a package of journalism, like a newspaper or a magazine, more difficult, because every single piece of content exists on its own and rises and falls on its own. 
And so building back loyalty to the, you know, most trusted names in journalism, I think is is a challenge. It doesn't also to an extent it narrows our world. I mean there's a there's a there's an idea that it expands it, but it can also make it Well the algorithm can narrow it right. because, you know, the social media depends on the emotion of liking, and so it wants to feed you more things you like, and it's not going to feed you a whole lot of news that you are likely to disagree with. So what would you do to avoid that problem? If we want to live in a, in a less narrow world, should we not like everything or like everything so the algorithm kind of doesn't work, so to speak? Well, I'm not an expert on algorithms, but I think that going back to trusted sources is important, and the de de debacle of what happened with Facebook in the election is a reminder of that, that social, social media can be a great place where ideas and journalism are exchanged, but um, having a principal source of news that you feel is trusted and, and accurate, I think is very important, not just letting the news feed be everything that you see. Because it is, you know, mutually reinforcing. Is there a is there a further risk with the with the socialization of the democratization of both distribution and production in the sense that the decisions you had to make when you were at the New York Times as as executive editor were, were difficult. You had to you had norms and institutional, uh, you know, kind of rules and a culture associated with, okay, how do I want to balance letting this national secret out uh, versus, uh, you know, protecting right. national security? that's the so-called gatekeeping uh, function right. that an editor has that um, has somewhat but not totally been eroded. Uh, you know, trust in journalism has been going down, and you know there there's a feeling that the public wants to see for itself right. uh, and not have a faraway editor making the decision of what's appropriate and what's not. Is for, that a dangerous world to live in? I think it is a dangerous world to live in. I think it, you know professional editors play an important role and you were we were just talking about how everyone is drowning in news you have to have someone who helps you prioritize and helps you sift uh, the important stuff from the nonsense aren't we heading in that direction though aren't things so, what do we do to to restore those sorts of institutions. Um, or we subscribe <laughs> to the New York Times and the Washington Post and yeah. the New Yorker and the yeah. Atlantic yeah. and the Wall Street Journal and... Do, do you use a platform to get your news? Uh, you mentioned Twitter. Is that your main source of finding um, news? I, I use, uh, yeah, I would say Twitter is probably the, the prime one. I use a lot of, in my email, I get a lot of aggregated newsletters from a whole lot of different news sources and spend about an hour on those. Do you also read Drudge or Breitbart? No, I don't read Drudge or Breitbart. Just to know what's going on on that side? To know what's going on on that side, I usually watch at night a little bit of Fox News. I guess it is a product of this kind of more diffuse world, but people are believing different different truths or different facts right. about the world. And is that, that seems, 
I mean, was Giuliani said the other day that truth isn't truth or something, right? right? And so, then Kellyanne Conway's right. famous alternative facts. Uh, what do we do in that kind of world? How do we fix that? Is it fixable? You know, I'm not, is it fixable? I think, you know, again, I'm sort of repeating myself that the, the way to fix it is to look, look for truth. And true, truth isn't dead uh, by any means of the word. It's also just, I mean, it's a, it also seems to be like a, a human, you know, those who believe conspiracy theories, it's, it's, it's those sorts of people who you need to shift over to believing the facts. So, it's true, yeah. and the unfortunate truth is the places that I just mentioned as being, you know, I think the, the gold standard of truth are seen as leaning liberal, so they don't reach, you know, large numbers of conservative readers. And that's worrisome because uh, what the algorithm has done is, you know, split people up into these filter bubbles where it's just an echo chamber of the same point of view and the same conspiracy theories and that kind of thing. Uh, what kind of phone do you use? I use an iPhone. Which is a product of the company Apple. Apple, which is amazing because your favorite snack is an apple. Yeah. Um, and we happen to have some apples right here behind me. Oh, great. Um, now, this is a very seasonal choice It of is yours. a seasonal choice. Um, do you prefer cutting them or just chomping right into I it? I cut. You cut. Um, so we have Cortland. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gala and Honeycrisp. Um, oh, I think I'll uh, have a Cortland. Okay, you like the green? It's a little, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, I can cut it for you if you, how do that you? That would be gentle. <laughs> yeah. <if you> like. <laughs> so, uh, is autumn your favorite time of year? Here at Harvard it is, back to school. Yeah, summer can be a little warm. Uh, what is it, is it something, is it just, I mean, because you were here as an undergraduate as well. I was. Uh, does it remind it, you of? Uh... Yeah, it does. Sometimes when I'm walking around this campus, I'm not sure whether, um, you know, in my 20s or my 60s, which is <laughs> <laughs> a nice way to walk around. Do you still go apple picking? Yeah, I'm definitely taking my granddaughter apple picking. Uh... Now, you grew up in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Was there... Was it tough to pick apples in Manhattan? We didn't pick apples in Manhattan. <laughs> we bought apples at the store. But so, my yeah. husband and I have had um, a weekend house in Connecticut for you know a, many, many, many years, and that's prime apple picking country. There are people who are actually, uh, friends of mine who are actually allergic to apples, unless it's microwaved. And then? And then it's fine. That's odd. Do and do they them? get all soft? Uh, I think, yeah, it might be just cooking the apples. It's mm -hmm. something about the cooked fruit that's fine. But that, I mean, it might be the pollen. But I don't actually know what it is. But generationally, that feels to be a difference. Allergies today seem to either people I know people everyone seems to have an allergy or an autoimmune disease. Uh, Are there other sorts of behavioral differences that you also see within, when you're walking around Harvard and the te teaching students, are there generational differences you see in how they consume the news, enjoy entertainment yes. the media? Yes, I mean, nobody reads a print, none of my students read the print newspaper either. 
the New York Times or the Harvard Crimson. They they're reading mainly on their phones. But do you think does that change? Their, do you think that changes their attention spans? Does it actually have an effect? On I don't see it changing my students' attention spans, mm -hmm. and I I mostly assign very long pieces of narrative journalism that they seem to love. Yeah, and you are you're creative writing. You're a you're a lecturer in creative writing. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what when when crafting a story. In your eyes, you're a big fan of long form. Mm -hmm. What goes into a good story? What is it? Well, good characters, uh, revealing anecdotes, narrative tension. You should wonder how is this going to come out? Is the main character going to be okay at the end? Uh, and, you know, my favorites give you the story behind the story, like. A political controversy where you know everybody has seen it one way, but a good journalist goes back and tells what was happening behind the curtain. Uh, that's what Jane, Jane Mayer of the New Yorker now and I did. We wrote a book, Strange Justice, about the Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill hearings, right. and that was a story everyone knew how it came out, but it turned out there was just this incredibly rich drama behind the scenes that nobody knew, and that's my idea of a great story. So you see nonfiction is best told almost at what people, these are a lot of things that people associate with fiction, mm -hmm. um, that nonfiction is best read as a narrative, as a fiction, almost like a fictional story. Uh, but scrupulously factual. Right, exactly, <laughs> that's right, yes. But it's, it's an irony, right, um, that, that the stories speak to people no matter whether or not um, nonfiction, at least growing up, I know I felt, I felt a little dry to me, the idea of reading a nonfiction mm -hmm. book, uh, whereas fiction or novels or stories actually had life. Right, but I think a good piece of narrative nonfiction almost paints a picture in your head the way reading a novel does. Well, on that note, Jill, thank you so much for joining. It's been an absolute pleasure. This episode of Snack Break was produced with the help of the Media Production Center, Hauser Studio, Tara Cavanaugh, and Harris Passeltiner. Introduction music was composed by Evan Fennessy. To learn more about the show or watch episodes rather than listen to them, find us on YouTube or visit our website at snackbreakshow.com. 